Welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier. And before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the crew at Cherry Bomb for their collaboration and their kindness. I love the impact that the Radio Cherry Bomb miniseries had and will continue to have. Thank you to everyone for listening in every week. Please continue to subscribe and share. Uh, that series. And, um, you know, I get the ongoing privilege of connecting and elevating with the, with black women every week and doing they're doing work that I admire and I love. And they entrust me with their voices and stories. And it's a humbling responsibility of which I am honored to shoulder. So thank you. Now, let's get into this conversation with the sauce queen herself, Chef India Johnson. Uh, Chef India grew up inspired by all cuisines, and as a professional chef, her food cooking style is based on fresh, local, and classic ingredients with a bit of a cultural and exotic twist. Her food is an artistic interpretation of many different cuisines that she enjoys and her craft is ever evolving. She is currently working on the launch of her product line, Sauce Queen. Sauce Queen was created for anyone who appreciates a pantry staple that is made of the highest quality ingredients and is looking to add a little bit of magic to any dish. Her signature sauces are made with familiar ingredients that you use every day, but they're blended with an open mind and a sophisticated palate to help elevate and easily add flavors to your meals. Be sure to visit her website, chefindia.co, to learn more about her Patreon campaign and then how to support the launch. Uh, Let's see. Oh, and Chef India also has a pretty fly video series called Sauce, Spice and Smoke. It's available to watch via IGTV or uh, YouTube. And you have to get into this. Um, You know how much I love some creative food content that has been shot beautifully. Her partnership with Media Lifted Films does not disappoint. This episode is produced with the support of the Afros and Knives patrons. Thank you so much for your constant support. None of this would be possible without you. To become a patron, you can visit the Patreon page uh, at patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives. Um, And if you're loving this podcast, be sure to continue to follow, subscribe, share, and comment. So now let's get into this episode. All right. Well, I am Chef India Johnson. India Johnson, but as far as like chef, I kind of struggle with that title. We could talk about it. (laughs) You know, becoming a chef has become a true journey and it's something that I always wanted to be called. And now that I'm doing some other things, I feel like I'm more of a businesswoman because I'm just looking into things that I can elevate to and leave a legacy for my family. But yeah, Chef India Johnson is who I am. I am in Atlanta, Georgia, originally from New York, born and raised there for a good bit, but then transitioned down to Atlanta for college, went to Florida for a little bit, and then came back to Atlanta in 2010. So I did have a career transition. One of the things that I used to do is called instructional design from a corporate America standpoint. (laughs) I went to school for computer engineering and just realized that it's not something that I wanted to do once I learned how to take a computer apart and put it back together. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, you know, this is kind of cool, but I don't think I want a job doing this. It's a lot of work. (laughs) But back in the early 2000s, when I was in college and I went to a technical college, that's a question someone always asked me, like, what kind of college I went to? I'm not familiar with the whole traditional college, especially HBCUs. I have friends who, you know, are all about that, fraternities, sororities, but that's not the life that I lived. I wanted to get a job as quickly as possible. And I was like, how can I do that? <laughs> I just want to make money. And I ended up going to DeVry just because technology in the early 2000s was what they advertised. You know, this is make money. Computers is the way to make money. And I was, you know, I felt like I was tech savvy. I was like, okay, I can definitely do that. And then attended DeVry down here in Stone Mountain. And that was like my first entry into Atlanta. And fell in love with Atlanta then, but from an education standpoint, it was really difficult for me to really, truly make a decision on what I wanted to do. I knew it wasn't computers. I ended up not doing that after I graduated. 
and basically went into customer service, tech support, basically a phone job. And that was pretty popular in the late 2000s as well. So what a lot of people did. And then from there, people just realized that I had a great personality and I was great with people on the phones. And so at the time I was working for Hewlett Packard. And when you say Hewlett Packard, you can tell how old I am. (laughs) 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 Hewlett Packard. Bell South, like, what are you talking about? That was Hewlett Packard, y'all. <laughs> right. And so I used to do like tech support and customer wow. service for like, and I'm saying DSL wow, like I don't know what you're talking about, but wow, like you work. know, because the children won't, uh, the children won't understand what it's like to sit there and wait for your dial up to connect, and you got all you got is AOL as a browser. So yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Right. So that was interesting. It was fun, though. But I just enjoyed talking to people. And then that led me into going into a career of training. So they asked me to be a trainer. And so I started to do like new hire classes. And if you ever had like a customer service job or a job like that, where you were going to be in the phones, you usually had to go through a training class for like three or four weeks with a trainer in a classroom. So I kind of did that and learned that I was really good at training people. I'm a people person. And I think that's like one of my greatest things that I love about myself is that I love people. I'm very social, but I was really good at it. And then from there, I got into instructional design. So not a lot of people know about instructional design, but it's mm. still training, right? But it's more from a technology aspect where you're building training, utilizing software and systems to do like online training and things like that. So I kind of transitioned into that and made a lot of money doing that. Worked for a lot of great companies. I've worked for companies like E-Trade and Coca-Cola and Cox Communications and AT&T and did that for quite a bit, like 10 years, 12 years, something like that. But along the way, I fell in love with food. My food love definitely comes internally from my family. My dad is a great cook. He was a chef for a really long time and he's also Caribbean. So, you know, being raised by my dad and having that Caribbean culture. And then my mom is from the South and she's a great cook. So that was just a big part of my (laughs) life as well. Southern cuisine, even though I'm not a huge fan of Southern cuisine, (laughs) but I'm more of like the Caribbean exotic. I got, I'm more like my dad versus like my mom in, in regards to how I cook, but I was always around great food and I always loved to eat. And from there, when I got to traveling as an adult and working, just going to all these different places, I learned the importance of food and all of that. And from there, it sparked my interest <laughs> to becoming a chef. But there is Isn't something it that always. before that. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I didn't jump right into food. I jumped Ooh. into wine. My dad was also a hobbyist winemaker. And in my travels, I used to have to go to San Francisco. And while I was out there, I would like just visit wineries and just fell in love with the wine process. And I know my dad did it, but more like as a hobby. Love, in do the garage. it. Do that. You know, he's Caribbean, so he'll take any If fruit. it'll ferment, <laughs> it'll, it'll work. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, right. So I had, I did have somewhat of an experience around that from my dad, but I learned a great deal about wineries and venting while being out in California a little bit, just visiting on different trips. And I decided that I wanted to become a winemaker. So my introduction to hospitality and culinary food and beverage is through wine, first and foremost. I love wine. I'm still an avid wine drinker. I drink wine every day. But I started a business called Urban Vines, where I wanted to market the fact that you could make your own wine because I learned a good bit about micro wineries, which is a facility where you can work with wineries that actually grow the grapes. You can partner with them and you could get the juice in. And then from the juice, you can then like ferment it and, and do your own process in a much smaller facility versus having all this land and being able to, you know, grow the grapes because I don't have a green thumb at all. So I wanted to do that. And I thought, I really, really thought I could bring a concept like that back to Atlanta. I was in Florida at the time and I said, hey, this is something I really want to do. I want to research this and find out how much it's going to cost to do something like this. 
And I would love to have a concept in Atlanta. I did some research. I'm like, you know, there's wineries in New York, there's wineries in California, those areas are saturated. Where can I do this? I can bring this experience to the people and be successful. And I attempted to do that here in Atlanta. <laughs> so that attempt, I'm just like, okay, it's one of those things that I don't want to say necessarily I failed. I just realized that it was just way too much for a startup or an entrepreneur to accomplish without true investment. Like to have even a micro winery is, I remember working with a consultancy trying to find out just how much it would cost me. And it was like $2 million. And now we have like city winery, which is a concept that came from New York. And uh, they have a couple locations in other cities that are here. And I think that's great. But all the wineries that we have in Georgia or in North Georgia, and then I don't want to say they're not great, but they're just not accessible, I should say. You know, you have to drive really, really far to go to a winery and visit and do a tour and do tastings. And I really, really wanted that for the inner city of Atlanta. And I think it's maybe something I might still try to do in the future, but that was like my first deep dive into food and beverage and really trying to make a career and a business out of it. I mean, it's such an interesting segue into food, getting into it in a different way, because like I kind of had the same trajectory. I did. I was in like graphic design and marketing for 10 years and then went on, (laughs) ended up being a tour manager for like two years in Nashville and was like, okay. And my entry into like food was really through the doors of like hospitality and like small private events. It wasn't like a direct line. And I think the more Mm -hmm. I talk to people that have found their way into food, like you, the common denominator is like the path isn't linear. And you usually end up finding out that they did something like pretty interesting before they rested in kind of the the chef space. And I, I, back to your first statement, it took me a long time to be like, yes, I am a chef. Like actually saying that other people would say it and then introduce me as such. And I would always just kind of like see up a little bit. I'm like, ah, I don't know if we want to say that yet. But yeah, I just, it's yeah. such an interesting, like, the, what was your moment when you decided, you know what, I qualify for the title? So it's interesting you mentioned like doing events and things of that nature. And that's kind of like how I made my transition. So, you know, with Urban Vines and wanting to like do the the whole micro winery concept, you know, this is like when Social media really wasn't too, we we have a lot of platforms now that you can choose from. I think we had Facebook, maybe Twitter, um, Instagram wasn't even in existence yet. Did you have MySpace? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we had a MySpace. So it was one of those things. And I had a friend who thought I was awesome. And she's like, hey, whatever help you need, I'm here. So, you know, we kind of like used to talk and try to plan and strategize on how I could make people more aware of that. The fact that I wanted to open this micro-ironary concept and we started doing events. And so I would throw small events and dinner parties at art galleries and things of that nature where I would invite people to come and have dinner and basically the sole purpose really was to people to try my wine, <laughs> but mm. I'm very particular about food. And so these events, I would also cook the food myself. And so I would be cooking at home with friends and doing food for these events. And my friends and people around me were like, you know, you're really, really good at this. And I'm just like, okay, well, you know, that's cool and all. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. I really, I'm really trying to put this wine right now. <laughs> I feel that entire mood right there. I feel right. all of and that. Yes. So there was a moment where I took it seriously to ask a lot of my friends who work in hospitality, like, hey, if I really wanted to become a chef and have this title respectfully, you know, do I need to go to culinary school? And a lot of my chef friends and people who actually mentored me said, no, (laughs) you already have a degree. Unless you want that extra debt, you're just a natural. I can organically just cook in the kitchen. Of course, I've got things like a serve safe and, you know, I've worked with a lot of other great chefs before I took on that true title. And I felt like I needed to do that. So once I decided, I to go to culinary right. school. I would ask my chef friends, those who especially had their own businesses at the time. I worked in the restaurant industry for a while. So I met a lot of 
servers, bartenders, chefs that eventually became our friends that connected me with other people. And I got to work with catering companies who needed help at the time, just taking on random jobs. And this is all while I had a corporate job, Tiffany. <laughs> so God bless you and yes, bless you. Yes. I would get up and go to my corporate job here in Atlanta, nine to five, typical nine to five. Mm. And I'm making a lot of money. I mean, for early, you know, late 2000s, I'm making at least 80, 90,000 at the time. And I'm still leaving work, going to work at a bar or a restaurant here in Atlanta, just so I could submerge myself in the culinary and hospitality culture and learn as much as I could about it to truly understand how everything works. And so once I felt like I did all that and I worked events and worked with other chefs and kind of got like chef's blessing, like, you know, if you wanted to do your own event or cater, you could do this. Like, you don't really need us anymore. And I kind of made that transition basically at that point, owning it like, OK, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. I didn't go to culinary school. I myself am deeming myself a chef. And if no one <laughs> likes it, that's their problem. <laughs> so. From there, I was chef. Well, actually, I was chef Ramos because I'm married now. So, you know, I go by Chef India now because if anything happens with my marriage, <laughs> I wish it to keep this first name. We're going to use it. I, keep the, I get to keep <laughs> Chef India no matter what my last name is. But yeah, so, you know, chefing for a while for me was interesting because I wasn't a restaurant chef. I didn't work in restaurants. I basically catered and did private events. And that was very successful for me for quite some time to when then I realized, well, I don't want to do this anymore. It's, it's work. <laughs> when I started doing private stuff, it was three times as much work because, you know, with a restaurant, the doors are open, people come in and sit down where that you have to really pursue that book of business and right. like keep it moving and keep it refreshed in circulation. So, yeah, I understand that life because there was a right. point where I was like, I'm done here. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It's a lot. And I have chef friends who still cater for their livelihood. This is how they make money. This is how they take care of their family. This is all they do. And I just I can't do that. So I was lucky a couple of years ago, a friend connected me to work for a catering company. So versus like cooking for myself as a business, I worked for another catering company as an executive chef. And then from there, I realized I like to do other things. Like I fell in love with sauce making, mm. which is something that I'm actually into right now. I worked for a catering company where their target market was tech companies. And basically- I believe worked for the same one. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you work for, work for Sifted? <laughs> I sure did. I sure, sure did. That's crazy. <laughs> Okay. Well, I opened uh, Phoenix as a city for them uh, last year. Shut the front door. Well, I opened and started the Atlanta kitchen. I was the chef that started their location here. That is insane. I remember because I, I was living in Nashville at the time and I had a friend who still runs a kitchen rental space there. And she reached out to me and was like, hey, there's these two girls that are trying to start a catering company. They have zero experience. And at the time, they only had like a Nashville city manager and that mm -hmm. was it. And no one knew anything. Right. And so they were. she was like, they just need some help. They need some advice. And so I had been talking to the two of them for like four or five years now. Mm. And so I remember like following them on social media. And then when they like opened Atlanta and I remember seeing your picture and I was just like, Okay, maybe they are serious. They got a brown face in the building. I like that. Because okay. uh, it just felt like, okay, if you're in Atlanta and there's a white chef, yeah. I'm going to be really annoyed because yeah. that just doesn't make any sense. You just blew my mind right now. And so, yeah, I was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I followed them for a minute and I was looking for a new job because I was I was in that same moment where I was just done trying to book clients. And I got a, a notification from Indeed. And at the bottom of that notification in the tiniest little letters, it said that Sifted was coming to Phoenix. And I immediately like sent an email and was like, lady, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. talk to me about what you need, mm -hmm. what do you need to do, what, what's happening? And right. because none of them had ever been to Phoenix. So they had no idea about the market or anything. So I was just like, look, yeah. I understand there's some formalities, but I got you. So yeah, I, we opened Phoenix last year in like April. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, girl, yes. I've never met anybody just like randomly like, oh, okay, sifted. 
I went through a lot of challenges. We don't have to talk about it. I'm we sure no, neither of us are any longer working for this brand <laughs> and there are various reasons. Yes. It was hard. It was hard. Hard. I remember somebody connected me to Sifted as well. And I remember like was needing and looking for a change. And I thought it was a great opportunity to just be able to run my own kitchen, but let like the business fall on somebody else. Like running the business is you guys, as long as I have the creative control of the kitchen, that's really right. truly what I only wanted. But I had a lot of issues with the commissary kitchen that Ooh. we were working out of here. And yeah, their concept is very interesting in how they choose to run it. Like, I used to always try to talk them into, like, why do we not have our own kitchen, our own building? Why are we spending all this money on this commissary space? Like, their logic Girl, on a lot of things you. is just like... It, it has not changed. It has not changed. <laughs> I was just... I had the same exact questions. I had the same I'm exact sure questions. Has, I just thought, when we got into our commissary kitchen in Phoenix, I was just like, this does not feel, like, carefully thought out. You know, I'm here, and why didn't you have me come look at this space Mm-mm. before we started? And so we made it work, but there was, we got to a point where I was just like, this isn't right. working anymore. And what you cannot do is continue down this path. So, like, before I left, because I left there to go to right. America's Test Kitchen, I ended up writing out an entirely okay. new position at the executive level for like a procurement director Mm. because their supply chain was just always a hot mess. And so I think that was part of the problem was like, if you have zero experience in food, zero experience in catering, like you're building this with a ton of blind spots. Mm -hmm. And so that was always our, our conversations always revolved around operations and never around food, unfortunately. So Mm -hmm. I had a chef in that location, but because the both of us had worked in food before, it was a constant conversation. And our team was kind of unique there because everyone that we hired on, from the community manager to the managing chef to our sous chef. Like we had all worked in food for over a decade. So like collectively we had almost like a hundred years of experience on the team. So it was just like, we were up and running so fast and we had zero issues and problems because we just knew how to cater and we knew what to do. And so that was a bigger part of the problem because there was a sense that, oh, we want to micromanage more of this, but we don't have enough, we don't have a knowledge base to micromanage you. They did not take advice well. <laughs> no. And I was just like, God bless them. No learn. And, yeah. it, you know, the two of them were great women. I love the fact that they were mm-hmm. ambitious enough to, like, think outside the box and rethink corporate lunch. Right. At the same time, it's like if you hire people who know more than you, you have to just let them do the work. Right. Absolutely. I had the same experience. And for me, Atlanta was their second kitchen. So you can and all the issues. Yeah that I went through with their second location. They have many locations now. And the only one I still kind of talk to is Jess. Okay. Yeah, checks on me a little bit. Same. But, <laughs> Same. Yeah, you know, I'm just like, I learned a lot. I learned a lot working with them. girl. Yes, yes. <laughs> leave it with that. We both learned yes. a lot. <laughs> yes. So when I decided to leave, I just went to Jess like, look, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I will help you find another chef. I will help you do whatever you need to do, but I just can't. You know, I've got some other thoughts and ambitions I think I want to transition into. But the, again, that story before I learned that you work for them <laughs> is that while working for them, I fell in love with sauce making. Right. right? So I don't know if they're making everything from scratch, but with the thought of lunch, you know, we had our proteins, we had our sides, and there was always some salad greens. And I found myself like making fresh made sauces every day, vinaigrettes branches, just everything. And it was not something that I typically did regularly. You know, I would make my own sauces for like events and stuff, but to like really hone in on a skill of sauce making like, and you're doing it every single day and people are like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Can we get the recipe? Had, some of the companies we were serving, like we're asking for my recipes for stuff. And I'm like, no, Girl, they, can't, love. they can't get that. <laughs> they can eat it. We we experienced the same thing. It was like we got in and we were doing like, it's the same setup. They still do everything from scratch, but that's, we leaned into like sauces. We did salsas. We did hot sauces. We did like, we Mm -hmm. did lean into the same stuff because we were like sitting in the kitchen going, okay, what else can we do? And they literally, all of our clients would do the same thing. Can we get the recipe for that? And we're just like, um. But that just makes you know that it's good, right? So I realized how good at sauce making I was and you know, I'm a research person. Everything that I do, I look into it. I'm like, okay, I'll have an idea or a thought. And I'm like, well, how do I go about that? 
And at that moment, when I decided to leave, I wanted to start my own sauce business, which has been a journey for a while now, but we could talk about that. And I wanted to learn more about co-packing and sauce manufacturing and all of that. So I went to UGA, which is in Athens, and I took some food science, food production classes, certifications to get my knowledge up (laughs) for that. And I'm like, okay, you know, this could be done. Really, I just need to kind of hone in on what recipes I want to develop, make sure that they are perfect, find the right manufacturer and launch this business. And so that was like the next wave for me at that time when I left Sifted. So it was interesting though, because I left them and then applied for my own space in the commissary kitchen that we were working out of. So I still saw them every day thinking I was still going to do some catering, but then it just still didn't work out for me. And I ended up leaving the commissary kitchen. And from there I was like, okay, now what? So the sauce business is still something that I am working on to this day. But before I could really get into it, I also worked on this project that was really, really, really fun. It's like my most favorite project of my entire career of what I was doing And I don't know if you're familiar, but Martel Cognac had this project called Martel Home. And it's a concept where they have like these huge mansion parties and they do them like in different cities. And their ambassadors are usually some sort of celebrity. So for Martel, it's Quavo from the Migos. I mean, they use him a lot in their marketing because they're they're marketing the black people. Right. They want us to drink. Martell versus Hennessy. And let's just be honest. <laughs> it is better than Hennessy, to be like, totally be real. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, utilize Quavo for the marketing for, to our, in our communities for people to drink Martell. And so they did a big Martell home mansion party here three years ago. And a chef friend of mine was working with that project for help. And I don't know if you're familiar with Ghetto Gastro. Ghetto Gastro is a group of guys out of New York. Really dope. But they are like the chefs of Martel. So basically, Ghetto Gastro was here in Atlanta. I got to meet them. And once they found out I was a chef, they were like, well, we need some extra hands for this mansion party. Do you want to work that night? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 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 I do. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Of course I do. And in doing that, I met some really cool people from Martell and learned that they were going to be working on a a smaller project here in the city and they might potentially need a chef. So after some time, I guess those conversations developed and it was something that they were really about to, you know, move on. And I got a call from their lifestyle manager at the time, Kareem Latif, called me, got my number from somebody. (laughs) It's like, hey, I'm trying to get in touch with her. Got in touch with me and said, hey, we're doing this concept. We're going to do like a beta run with Interscope Records. We want to do a dinner party. We've got like this penthouse apartment. Come up with the menu and tell me how much it's going to cost and we'll have you do it. So I did that and it was so much fun. And from there, I learned that they wanted to continue it. So I got to be in those conversations. They basically offered me to be their resident chef. And I did that for two and a half years. And so working for Martell was interesting. I got to drink every day. I like to drink, if I didn't say that before. <laughs> I, I, I got it. I got it. You good. They had a great cocktail program. They brought in a mixologist. So I got to taste and experience a lot of great cocktails. I got to creatively put my food in front of people, which was the most awesome. We're talking mm. about celebrities. We're talking about influencers. Any and everybody came through that penthouse. And I was able to create my own menus, Of course, we took into consideration dietary restrictions, things like that, which we could find out from people in advance who we knew were going to attend that night. And I just got to do a lot of great food creatively. It's like, I feel like it's a lot of my best work visually because they always took like pictures and videos and stuff. So it was a great time. It was a great time. And then that project sadly ended towards the end of last year. So it was interesting because I was pregnant with my son last year. And I had to tell Marcel, like, okay, so I'm pregnant. (laughs) And it's going to be cool to have a pregnant chef at your Martell events. But right now, you really can't tell. But eventually, you're going to be able to tell. So we need to come up with a plan. 
Martel, that project kind of had like on and off time. So we would like go doing events. And when we did events, it was like maybe three or four events a week. So that basically came my career. It was my job. Like I didn't cater for anybody else. I didn't take any outside requests. I only cooked for Martel for like two and a half years because it was enough money for me and it was a lot of work. And so we would also have off times where we weren't doing projects, that project or events for like a month. We would take like a, a break a month or two and then kind of get back up. And that was due to budget reasons. They would only like provide a budget for like three or four months. And then they would have to work on getting another budget for another three or four months. And that's kind of how it works. So when I got pregnant last year, I was still doing it. And it was like through the summer. And then we were, we were getting ready to come up on a break anyway. And so we were supposed to come back to do that project in October. My son was born in November and I was like making plans to have another chef in my place just in case. And then they wanted to like move the location from where we were to another location. And then we were supposed to go to the Lowe's, like the Lowe's hotel in Atlanta has like a resident side. And so they were looking to, to do the same thing, set up like a penthouse situation. And that kind of fell through. And so, because they felt like the project had run like two years they're like you know what we're good with this <laughs> so at the end of last year we got all got calls and emails like you know Marto project is not happening anymore and so at the end of last year i was like fuck okay, <laughs> like, what am I gonna- um, all right y'all <laughs> i just had a baby this is what i've been doing for the last two and a half years like what am i gonna do now and so at the same time through martel i had been working on my sauce project concept, right? So I went and got all these certifications, found a manufacturer who I felt could manufacture my products, went through the whole FDA situation, which takes like months to get your products FDA approved. It's all this testing. You got to make sure your products can be put on the shelf and they don't kill anybody, basically. (laughs) You know, so went through that whole process. And then at the same time, when I got the bad news about Martell, I got also the bad news that my manufacturer was closing down. So I was really at a point to where I had went through all these processes, testing, money spent, and investing in getting the sauce line launched. And then my manufacturer says, they're shutting down. Okay. So that happened like Thanksgiving. Then I got the Martell call in December. So I had already knew 2020 oh, was going to be said interesting. I had, they had all, I mean, shot fired already. <laughs> okay. Good oh, night. Man. So, yes. So, you know, it was fine. Things happen. I'm a person that adapts. I'm like, okay. I'm always just like, okay, well, what's next? What can I do next? And so, you know, I just took some time off. My son is my, I have two stepsons, but this is my first child. So like learning how to be a mom and an entrepreneur at the same time, it's been really difficult. Well, it was difficult for a while. He's seven months now. So I feel like I have a flow of like what I'm trying to do and how I manage my son in the process of being a mom and also spending time to make sure I get work done on the projects that I'm, I'm currently working on. But so I just took some time off holiday season and then January came around, which is my birthday month. So I was still like chilling, like, okay, I could actually go out now and have a drink. I'm not pregnant anymore. So I celebrated my birthday, you know, no big deal. And then February came around. And so my friend, I have a friend named Shannon Evans. She is a mixologist and she has a concept called Holy Sip. And with her concept, Holy Sip, she travels the world. She's a world traveler. She loves to travel. She likes to travel the world and throw dinner parties, and it's called Holy Sip. And so she's from Jamaica, and she travels to Jamaica all the time. And three years ago, we did this trip where we went to Jamaica, and we did this dinner party, and we've been doing it for three years. And so February was the third year we went to Portland. If you're unfamiliar with Portland or Port Antonio, it's like the side of Jamaica that you need to see. It's going on the list. Yeah. If you go to Jamaica and you go to like the standard Negril or Martigo Bay and you're staying at resorts and, and all inclusive this or that, you're experiencing Jamaica. But if you go to Portland or Port Antonio, you're experiencing true Jamaica. Mm. So you have in the Kingston and it's a two and a half hour drive from Kingston down this 
mountainous, rocky. It's the worst drive ever. But <laughs> once you get there, it is like, wow, it's beautiful. Waterfalls, beaches, just, and it's, you know, the locals are super sweet. You find the great Jamaican food. They have like this open air market in the city part of it where we can, when we do the city party, we go and we shop for locally for ingredients, produce, meats, seafood. And it's just so much fun. And then we usually have a dinner party at like a villa or something that has a great view. Shannon is into like design and decor. So she usually like not only makes the drinks, but she sets up the whole situation. And I shop for the food. I cook the food. We have a great time. We spend some time in Jamaica and then we go home. So it's usually a great thing. So I did that in February and I think we'll continue to do it. I would like to see her also do it in other cool places, but you know, with COVID-19, after that, it was like, oh, okay, well, we have to take this seriously. Of course, we were hearing about it because I remember when I was on my way to Jamaica back in February, my husband was like, uh, you sure you want to go? And I'm just like, why? Why would I go? And I didn't take it seriously. Nobody like anybody. And he was like, well, you know, this thing called COVID-19. I'm like, okay, well, you know. Like, let me know how that turns care. out. Let me know how that turns out. <laughs> yeah, February was weird because it was like there was a combination of energies around. Yeah, and they were weird. like, okay, some people were like, oh, this is this seems like it's going to be problematic. Other people were like, eh, you know what? It's probably just some early flu right. stuff and you're cool. Right. And yeah, that did not go the way right. we all thought. Right. Yeah. No, it didn't. So when I came <laughs> home, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a thing. And we have to be super <laughs> careful about this. So I'm glad I got the chance to go to Jamaica, you know, before all this really in the March timeframe. So it's been interesting, the things that I've been doing these last couple months. One of the biggest things for me was to find a new manufacturer. So, you know, I mentioned I took some time off to be a mom, my birthday, then went to Jamaica. And then it was like, okay, March timeframe, I need to get back on the sauce situation. Right. So I did my research, found another manufacturer which was really hard to really like pin down a manufacturer with everything going on. Because usually when you're working with a food manufacturer, you usually visit and see how they operate and see what the equipment they have and make sure they, they can reproduce your recipes. I haven't really been able to do all of that <laughs> because of COVID-19. Right. But I do feel like I have a manufacturer now that I think is going to work. So I've been talking to them a lot about stuff. I was able to send them my recipes and they've been able to do, you know, R&D and send me back samples and things. And we've been making adjustments that way. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to visit the manufacturer myself, but they've been sending me samples where I know that they can produce my product. So now I'm in a phase where it's like, all right, I'm finalizing things with my manufacturer. Unfortunately, if you think about it, I've already worked with a manufacturer and I've already got my recipes FDA approved, right? But if you leave one manufacturer and go to another, this is for all you people out there who want a food manufacturer, you got to go through the process all over again. (laughs) So look, let the people know, let the people know. Yeah, I had to spend more money for this new manufacturer to beta test my recipes to ensure that they could reproduce it. And now we're in the FDA process all over again, even though my products have already been FDA approved, but it's because I'm with a new manufacturer, we have to do it all over again, which is very, very unfortunate. And if you don't know, you're going to be upset about it. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm pushing forward. I'm a type of person. I've got to go for it. So yeah, with yeah. we're going through the FDA process right now, which can take up to two months, but now that I know I'm kind of, once I get my products FDA approved again with this manufacturer, I can then move forward and prepare my products for sale. Right. So we'll do a production run and then I'm thinking through, okay, well, how do people buy my product? Well, I have all these thoughts and ideas of doing pop-ups and things of that nature, putting my products in front of people, which I love events. So like, that's a part of my plan, but it's like, okay, where am I selling this? You know, people have these dreams like, oh, I'm going to have a product and I'm going to put it in Target. I'm going to put it in Publix. And it's like, okay, even if you do that, your product can sit on the shelf for however long and you're still not making any money. So I'm trying to strategize a plan. I've got a, a PR firm that I'm talking to that has all these great ideas on how I can bring awareness 
and things I can do to get people interested in buying my product. I think I have a great brand. It's called Sauce Queen. If you haven't seen it, it's at SauceQueen.co on Instagram. I've also been doing my own YouTube series called Sauce Spices Smoke. And that came out of just, again, bringing people to a platform where they can learn more about sauces. And I love spices and I love flavors of smoke. So I've been doing really well working with my videographer on filming that. We took a break. We did 10 episodes. We're like in a holding pattern right now um, with everything going on, just creatively, just like with all, with everything. <laughs> like, let's just take a break. And then we'll come back with like a season two. Okay. So we're, okay. Cause I definitely watched yeah. season one. Cause I was like, Aww, okay. Thank you. Let's, thank let's you. Thank this. you. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's something that I've always wanted to do. I have interest on having my own show, not necessarily being on TV. Production companies contact me all the time. Like, right. Hey, on this contest show or that food contest show. And I'm not really a competitive person. I cook out of love out of respect for the ingredients. I'm a person of service. I love to serve people. I love to put a plate down in front of someone that I've taken the time and put my love and my passion into it and watch you enjoy it. I'm not about the the competition. I've had this conversation with some other colleagues and I've had a couple of friends who have actually participated in Chopped. I worked for a chef in Philadelphia who actually won Iron Chef over Michael Simon. Like, so I know people who've done it and we all, you know, collectively have kind of had the same thought. Like it really, it's entertainment for sure, but I don't know how much it does to support the professional chef conversation overall. Like, I don't know how that is helping us all win collectively outside of putting people, putting us in front of people. And I just never thought it was, it it wasn't to our advantage to compete. It's like, because serving food is an act of love. And so competing is just like, it just seems out of place for, for what we do. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just, it's problematic when you have a professional crew of people doing it with you. Like, it's definitely problematic if you're trying no. to do it at home and all you have is your iPhone camera and That's your child. No it's just, me, it's like, yeah, it's not helping in that situation at all. It's like, it's oh. not winning points. Like, when we're able to get back into a television studio, I don't know if we need to revisit this idea. It, we could, I think we can let this one go. I think we can let this one go. What's What's funny is like hearing you talk about like getting into more like television production or even video production. And I've been able to talk about it more and more because it's become more and more of a reality. But I've been working on a concept or project that really that's what it does. It's building a OTT platform or digital platform for video content that is primarily produced and hosted by black people and people of color. And it runs essentially it'll run like any other OTT program, which is like your Netflix or your HBO app, Amazon Fire or something in there. So yeah, it's like one of those particular programs where you don't need cable to have it. You pay for the subscription and you can watch you know, streaming content on your phone. You can watch streaming content on a tablet or on a television. And essentially, I'm just like, and I'm looking for like, it, I've been sitting on it for a few years because I wanted to see where food media in general would go. Like, would they figure it out or would they eventually double down on what they were already producing? And of course they doubled down. And so I was like, there's a fewer and fewer black and brown faces in these spaces at this point. And I was just annoyed because I knew like people like yourself existed and, you know, you're doing your own shit and you're out here, you're, you're shooting your own video and it's insane to watch. It's incredible to watch. And people just don't know that it's out there. And I'm like, more people should have eyes on this type of content. And so I'm like, what do we, what do I do about that? And so I was like, well, why the hell not? Like, you know, I watched Taste Made coming to their place and you know in the very beginning they had some incredible content like I remember first being introduced to chef Naisha Arrington through a series that they had produced there and it was like a little docu-series about origins and origin stories and so I remember watching and immediately I was in the middle of watching her episode and I sent a tweet to her to see if I could stage in her kitchen like it was just that dope and at the time I wasn't working in a restaurant and I really had no interest in it but I just wanted to like be in her space and like be in the restaurant 
and really catch that energy in person. And so once I, you know, I got all in the taste made, I bought my subscription. I was really into what they were doing. Everything was super diverse and it looked great. And then like a few years in, they just kind of did the same thing like the Food Network did and the Cooking Channel did. And it just got homogenous and stale and they stopped telling really interesting stories. So I walked away from it. And then a few years ago, I get this LinkedIn message from their director of content. And she had just taken the position. She had been in the position for maybe a month. And she had reached out to me because I had submitted like a resume. I'm one of those people like, if I see there's a problem, I'm gonna go see if I can fix it from the inside out first. <laughs> and, um, so I was like, what can I do to get in y'all's business a little bit? And so she reached out to me and we had a quick chat because I just wanted to let her know like, look, you know, in the beginning, you guys were doing the shit. And now I don't know what the hell happened over there, but you need to revisit the original vision for what you're doing. And she was like, you know what, I agree. And this is why I'm happy to talk to you. And so she I guess she must have Googled me because I made two professional level cooking videos on YouTube a long time ago when I was living in Nashville. And so I don't talk about them videos. <laughs> I don't need anybody to go watch them doing you don't have to get involved with them doors at all. You don't have to watch them things. Don't even worry about Googling that stuff, y'all. Don't even jump on there. But I just wanted to see what the process, I was curious about the process of producing really high-end cooking videos because I was curious about like the back end of it. So she found them and <laughs> she reaches out again and she's like, are you still making these? I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that was not something I was signing up for. <laughs> So I was like, no, she was like, well, you should think about doing these again. And I was just, it's so funny that television production or video production has been a part of my career since I started working in food. Like when I was going to culinary school, I was going to Le Cordon Bleu. I was working at Little Godiva chocolate store next to this Macy's and people would come in and they would grab a stool and sit at the counter for hours like I was serving liquor and chat it up. One guy actually came in and actually asked me to open a tab. I was like, sir, that is not how this works. You buy your items and you go home. <laughs> I was like, what? He was like, I just like hanging out here. You always have so much information and you're just really engaging. And so every time someone would leave that shop, they would just go, you should be on television. You should be on television. So that's just been a part of my universe and in the background for a long time. So that's awesome. Well, we definitely should talk more about that. Yeah. And it's Tiffany, it's been a while to get there. So like the idea of that, of what I'm doing now, I've had it for years now. <laughs> I never it with other videographers, right? And so really was about finding the right videographer. My videographer friend Mike is he's very passionate about food himself, right? And when I work with other videographers, you know, I would get feedback like, oh, this is dope, you know, it's a great concept, but it's really hard to shoot. We need more cameras, we need more this, we need more that. And I'm like, well, I don't have the okay, budget for all of that. <laughs> so hey, to do this, I can self-invest at this point where then I can get people, other people interested and then get picked up or whatever. I need to be able to self-invest and do this as long as, and keep it consistent so I can kind of attract the fan base. And it wasn't until Mike, I used to work with Mike back in the day. He filmed a couple things for me just randomly. Mike is from Media Lifted Films, giving him a quick plug. Really, really great eye for just things. You know, if you go to his Instagram page and you see his work, it's like he's a great eye for people. He has a great eye for food. He loves buildings. He does like these quick videos of his architecture and stuff. And like, he just has a great eye for all these things. And he edits really, really well. So I think pairing myself with being a great cook and having a vision of what I would like to share with people from a soft spice and smoke mm. perspective, and then him and then sitting down and editing it in such a way brings it all together and people really enjoy it. So our plan is to continue doing them. At this point, I'm self-invested. So when I want to do a show, I tell him what day I have available. I pay him to do it. He sits, he edits, we put it out. And right now it's just like, people keep asking me like, what are your plans for this? What's your intention? I'm just like, right now, I don't know. This could go anywhere. You know, if it doesn't go anywhere, it's just yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And to your point about using this particular brand to shoot, that was one of like the big requirements for me is finding black brands that do media and like looking for filmmakers and videographers mm -hmm. that are black. Because I want, you know, I want full production to have yes. as many black and brown faces all over it as possible because they know how yes. to 
shoot us. So yeah, so I mean, we can have an offsides conversation right. about this brother right here. But uh, right now, because I'm on his <laughs> website right now, and I'm like, yeah, about that, because that yes. was that's kind of my missing piece right yes. now. It's like, okay, I have these concepts, I have these ideas, I have a couple of people in mind to actually host a couple of pieces. But I need I need a crew of people. Mm-hmm. I need a person who is primarily a black person who can do this, who can actually film and shoot and talk to me about production. So, right. yeah, so please continue to yes. shoot this because I, I it needs to happen. Yeah. And let me tell you, I'm going to give you the inside scoop. The inside scoop to this show is that we do it in my house, <laughs> in my own kitchen. You can really tell the way that he edits it because everything's like super close up. But he brings all the lighting. He just knows how to transform any space to make something work. And that was one of the issues that other videographers used to tell me. It's like, you know, you, we need to be in a studio kitchen or I'm just like, I don't, I can't, we don't, we don't have that. I don't know. We're not doing that. And so I brought Mike over like, look, this was the beginning of the year when I knew that I wanted to do this show I was like, look, I have this concept. I don't know if you're interested. Come to my house. Just take a look, see what we can do. And he was like, yeah, we could definitely make this look very professional with the lighting and how we shoot and edit the food and the things that you do and put it out there. When I saw the very first episode that we did, I was like, oh. this is so beautiful the fact that he knew to like vibe with you on that he was like no this is not an impossible thing to do we don't need to do all this he's like he saw what needed to be done and was able to go no this can this can happen this can absolutely happen and that comes through on every video it absolutely y'all's collaboration definitely comes through on every video yep thank you so much thank you so much I'm so happy that I was able to get it off the ground and I wouldn't be able to have done the show without Mike. So we're going to continue to do the show. And definitely he is even interested from a producing aspect, transitioning into other stuff. So, yeah, we could definitely talk about what you got going on and how we could fit in with that. So Sauce Spice and Smoke is something I'm currently still doing. It's an active project. People are loving the content. I greatly appreciate you saying that you've been watching and loving the content as well. With that, I'm working on a cookbook as well. So I'm going to have some of the recipes from the shows, but other recipes I feel like, you know, the whole process and thought process around Sauce Spice and Smoke is sharing knowledge, right? These are things that you should be able to easily make at home yourself without having to run to the store and get a canned marinara or a canned Alfredo or a bottle of vinaigrette. Like I want to share these quick recipes and things that you people can do at home. It's easy to do at home. And so we're, I'm going to write a recipe book called Sauce Spice and Smoke that kind of pairs with the show. So that's going to be coming. What else is coming? Sauce Queen is definitely coming with this new manufacturer process. I'm very excited about that. We're going to be selling it online, Amazon, and on my own e-commerce website. And all these things should be ready to go around the holiday season is my goal to have all these things available. So I'm very excited about that. It's an exciting time for me. And other things, future things, I have interest in basically like taking the Sauce Queen stuff to another level with like retail store. So I have been researching and looking into spaces in regards to, I would love to have like a retail store slash demo kitchen, maybe like a studio kitchen where we could film, you know, that could fit very well into that, maybe possibly for something for next year. And then the biggest thing that I'm into right now is hotel hospitality. So I have a love. And I feel like we don't have any really cool boutique hotels here in Atlanta. Um, you know, we have a couple bed and breakfasts, but no. And a lot of the hotel chains are, yeah. you know, they, they make smaller, you know, Marriott, may ha- we have Marriott downtown, but then they have like these smaller brands, Bonvoy and all these other things that they want to make you feel like it's boutique, but mm-hmm. still big corporate. America. You know what I mean? So I'm like, no, it's not. We don't, we need something more authentic. So so I don't really know a whole lot about hotels. (laughs) I go stay in hotels. Okay. Well, Again, we have an offside yeah. about this because I opened a property in Phoenix. It was a luxury property called the Montelusia, which mm-hmm. is now owned by Omni. But at the time, it was owned by Intercontinental, and so I worked in uh, guest services mm-hmm. there. And then ended up when I ended up in Nashville, opened another property as the uh, director 
Tiffany, you might be my new best friend, girl. Wow. <laughs> so I ended up, yeah, we were, I think we opened in 2000 and 2016, I want to say. And so, yeah, I managed that property as well. But, I mean, I worked in a hotel yeah. during like the second half of culinary school and got obsessed, absolutely obsessed with like guest services and hospitality and like that high level of luxury that still is very accessible so i am tracking with you a hundred percent and it's so funny because like the intention of this podcast was to actually interview women who do work as like innkeepers who work in hospitality who own hotels and it has been the hardest thing to nail down black women who work in these spaces and so i'm just like um (laughs) no like it's it's time i'm obsessed on the consumer side Whenever I travel or with my family, I'm always looking for the most coolest, most authentic boutique experiences. You know, when I go to New Orleans, there's, like, there's a few of them, you know, other cities. So we just don't have it here. It's interesting that I started out telling you my story about culinary and how I decided not to go to culinary school. But I felt like I was a great enough cook to proceed in that career. But now I'm so, you know, I'm getting ready to like, go back to school to get my degree. Totally. I feel like I have to. I have to because I want to. I'm so obsessed about it. I'm just like, I want this so bad. And I I just Google and research and all these really cool hotels and concepts. And, you know, again, I'm a person of service. So like guest services and providing this experience to other people is something that I'm just like, man, I could provide a great experience to other people. It's really always about others, not about myself. So, yeah, that's something new that I'm into as of like the last several months I've had time to think about what I really want to do with my life. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has had to kind of really retool and rethink about what's possible because it's interesting in this kind of scenario where you between like the COVID virus and then the racism virus that has popped up in everyone's faces again. I mean, and you know, like we tell people like it's not new for us, but it's definitely a discovery for the rest of the world. And I think between those two things, we've had to pivot quite a bit and process a lot. While it's messy at the moment, it's not always going to be thus. Now is not forever. So you have to think past what's happening right now because the window will close and it won't open again for a minute. And you need to think about what's possible because what all the systems you had depended on all this time are being dismantled, pulled apart, reevaluated. They're going to change. So the question is, how do you fit and how do we continue to innovate even past that point? It's like, okay, so now that the world is catching up with what we already knew and already knew how to do and had already been addressing, how do we continue to move the world forward? That's why I say you're going to be my new best friend. We got so much more to talk about. <laughs> so much. I'm going to take these last few minutes and just give us the general rundown of like where to find you, the website address again, how we can support you and um, whether it's be coined or just, you know, spreading the word and just give us like a quick nugget on that so we can um, make sure we're supporting your work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Chef India, my Instagram is at chefindia.co. I primarily live on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter and you can find me on Facebook, but I usually find Facebook for more family and friend type of situations. But if you're on Facebook, you can find me as India Johnson on there as well. But primarily Instagram is where I connect and interact and talk with people. It's where I post my work primarily. So if you want to see my work, the type of food that I cook, my style, Instagram is going to be the way to go. I do have a brand called Sauce Queen. Instagram for that is at saucequeen.co. And that is solely branded for my sauce line products that are going to be coming out this fall. You'll see a lot of the sauce spices smoke videos that you can also find on YouTube that are out there that kind of support that brand. So I would appreciate it right now if you go out to YouTube, look at my sauce spice and smoke videos, comment, like, subscribe. That's the one thing that could be really helpful right now as far as the current things that I'm working on. And then, you know, you guys can just look out for... Sauce Queen everything this fall is really, really, really what I'm really into right now. And and that's how you guys can support me. So and if you want to, you know, I'm thinking about doing a crowdfunding campaign. I'm just thinking about all kinds of stuff. You know, there's there's plenty of support. (laughs) 
Look, I mean, hey, it's definitely like that thing to think through. I'm like, I've had so many like internal conversations about, okay, how are we funding any of this right now? So yeah, I feel that pain. And um, no, it definitely will show up though. Like that's the one thing I know for sure is that when something is meant to happen, the resources absolutely show up when they're supposed to. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I was like, it's so exciting to talk to someone who has worked for Sifted before. (laughs) (laughs) That blew my mind. My mind doesn't get blown too easily. I was like, wait, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for taking some time and and, uh, hanging out with me. And I'll make sure we get all that information onto the episode page for you so people know exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And please keep in touch. Oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, we've got a lot more that's it for this week's episode thank you so much for listening in and being a part of the Philias click in podcasting thank you to chef india for spending some time with us and sharing her story if you love these conversations be sure to download subscribe comment and share you can get further connected with the afros and ives community by following us on instagram twitter and facebook and be sure to visit the website at www.afrosandknives.com. And there are some pretty dope t-shirts in the shop right now. So go ahead and get you some before the summer is over. Afros and Knives does not work without the financial support of our Patreon community. So to become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash Afros and Knives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video. I'm going to be doing some part twos uh, for Patreon members only. So it'll be part twos of favorite conversations I've had and that conversations that you've enjoyed. So you're definitely going to want to be a part of that. And the only way to get access is to be a patron. Um, And you don't want to miss out. So until next week, may you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be at peace.